With the inception and traction that blockchain and crypto has gathered, the world is possibly on the verge of the largest evolution since the mainstream of the internet. Given the fluidity and dynamic nature of this technology, business leaders, enthusiasts, and veterans all need to band together to navigate the current and upcoming storms. Participants in Web 3.0 want a trusted resource that gives them pertinent information about projects, tokens, technology, and businesses. We are business people talking the business of crypto. We are YWales. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, Y Whales. Uh, today is a session number three of Y Web 3. I'm here with Jessica, my co host. Um, and we're just going to go ahead and dive right into one of the most amazing groups that I, I believe we could possibly put together. And we're going to be talking about blockchain tech and really trying to dispel a few of the myths that we see around on the interwebs uh, at any given time. There's always a lot of FUD about you know, proof of work versus proof of stake. Um, is this secure? Is this not secure? You know, how, how does this work? Um, I am not an expert. I'm not going to pretend to be an expert. Um, Jessica absolutely can, but I think that she'd like to defer to our panel today. So let's go ahead and start with uh, Alex. Would you mind giving us kind of uh, your intro and background and then we'll flow from there? Sure. So I'm really glad to be here. Uh, I'm also excited about uh, having this discussion. So my name is Alexander Lupashko. I am a co-founder and CTO of Omnia Protocol. Uh, my background is mainly in engineering and cryptography. And uh, let's say my main activity is through the, the works within the privacy in the blockchain ecosystem. So describe really quickly what Omnia does. So it, it provides an untraceable infrastructure, but in a compliant way. It's, it's like compliant privacy on blockchain. Perfect, which is a very important part of, of Web3 and blockchain adoption. Thank you. Richard? Hi, good morning. I'm delighted to be here. Also really looking forward to the conversation. Um, uh, my name is Richard McLaren. I'm CTO of Polemos, uh, which is a GameFi platform. Uh, my background really is consumer uh, tech and data, uh, most recently uh, looking at sort of machine learning, sort of algorithmic sports trading in the cloud, um, and prior to that, so I ran tech for one of the larger digital publishers here in Australia. Fabulous. And Mr. Marshall. Hey, everyone. My name is Marshall Hainer. I'm CEO and co-founder of Metal and founder of Proton Blockchain. And uh, really great to be back on the show. Thanks for having me back, Jay. Uh, love to, to talk with all the Y whales and crypto DeFi people about where we're going and uh, tons to talk about today. So thanks for having me back. Absolutely fabulous. So Jessica, I, I, this is a, an interesting one for us and we've, we've kind of tackled a few subjects and, you know, I, I'd love for you to start off the conversation, um, and, and really pose, you know, what's on your mind because too often that we're asked, you know, a lot of questions and the, the questions are generally leading towards, you know, something that's been said online or what a supposed expert in mainstream media has, has parroted, um, from, from some white paper that was probably written, you know, years ago and is completely irrelevant. What's, what's some of the biggest challenges that, that you're seeing, um, that, that we'd like to go ahead and start this conversation off with? Well, gosh, I'd love to just start maybe with some, some anecdotes around, what is what is a future viable use case of maybe some of these technologies that would appeal to the layperson? I mean, everybody on this call I know has heard the analogy that or or the old adage that history doesn't repeat, but it rhymes. 
we've seen web one, we've seen web two, the, the, the buzz phrase web three, I think has reached mainstream. And of course we're calling this our web three series. Uh, so, so I think that that's a, a, a well understood concept, but I'd love for each of you just to kind of, Hey, here is one application of the technology that is that will really appeal to somebody in the mainstream, to the layperson. So, you know, I know Jay and I the other day were talking about insurance certificates. You know, we don't think in the future that you're going to get a PDF that anybody could fake insurance for certificate. We think you're going to get a NFT for your insurance certificate. And and in fact, in my business, um, we did issue an NFT for an exclusivity token uh, for a deal that we did. So rather than sending a PDF or sending some other kind of token, we issued uh, an NFT for that exclusivity token. So that's that's kind of a very brief example, but you know, rather than art or some other application, I'd love to hear uh, just one real world application. Marshall, you want to start? Sure. Um, yeah. So I, you know, I, I want to, I, I think I mentioned this the last time I was on the show, but, uh, you know, when was the last time you've had to pay cash for something? You went to a valet, you, um, you went to tip someone, you went to a cash only restaurant. Um, it happens all the time and we don't really use cash anymore, especially post 2020. So now everybody kind of uses Zelle or Apple Pay or Venmo. And this has mostly been happening to me at the valet, right? That's where that's where I'm getting hit where somebody's like, do you have cash? And I'm like, I don't have cash. And I go to my car and scrounge out like some dollars or some change or something. And there's a platform where we can send each other stable coins with no gas for free. I saw CZ, the founder of Binance, tweet the other day. And he said, one of my security guards just told me it's so cool that him and his wife can send payments to each other with crypto and there's no gas fees. And I said, he must be talking about Proton because there's there's no other blockchain that allows you to send with no gas fees. But, you know, regardless of me shilling my own you know crypto projects, that's where we're going. Right. No gas fees, fast transactions, decentralized identity, attesting your uh, insurance to the ledger. I got questions uh, today and this past week about Proton KYC. What are we doing with that? And that's this, what we're doing is what a lot of companies are going to do is we're going to keep the records in the way that we normally do, but now we're going to use a unalterable ledger, whether it's proton or other, uh, to be able to verify that information. Um, you know, I just happen to be on the cutting edge of this. I'm working on a lot of this stuff, but that's where I see this going. Right. And so, uh, payments, P2P payments, cash is gone and card payments, why should we pay 3% as small businesses, as merchants, when there's a free network out there and I could kick back the merchant fees that I used to pay in the form of loyalty to the users? So that's, I think, is going to be the biggest one. And it's going to come in the form of NFTs. You're going to see it with Disney and Apple and major companies and maybe your insurance provider and your lawyer, too. You know, legal contracts and hopefully uh, state of California and other cool states will adopt and, and, and use it inside of our... Um, uh, government record systems, because that could definitely use an overhaul. So, so I want to pause on this for one second and, and, and really dive a little deeper into, you know, some of the, the terms that you just said, Marshall, and it's peer to peer. And so there's a lot of people saying, well, I can already pay, you know, using Zelle or using all these things. I can pay these services. And what people need to remember is we're now removing the middleman. You're no longer that when he's, when, when Marshall's talking about, you know, no gas fees, that that's a, that's a layer one, um, you know, uh, 
advantage that that Proton has over others. But even when you're talking about normal like Square or any of these things else, you're paying a third party provider. They are holding it. They are charging fees to hold it. And then the eventual end user gets it at some point. Being able to pay the valet is the same as handing them cash. You are going, this is the user, and the money goes directly to them with no middleman and no fees, meaning that, again, it, it really does make a difference when you're talking about peer-to-peer um, from that perspective. So uh, I just wanted to clarify that point real quick. And you can see the benefit, too, in DeFi, right? Yeah. There's not a single DeFi platform that's not paying t- you know, 10 to 100 times over what your bank is paying on a, on a CD, right? And... Um, you know, I want to make it easy for people to be able to get that twenty dollars and and turn it into forty dollars at the end of the year. And even though that doesn't sound like a lot, that is substantial, right? I think that you know to be able to have that opportunity. So I think checking checking accounts are going to go away. And you know, outside of the Proton world, just to take a look at Curve for a second, look at the new uh, four pool with UST. Uh, pool and, and all this talk about how kind of Curve is the new DeFi savings account. That's what's the new savings account. So also savings accounts, right? Why would we ever... I actually was just thinking about the other day, I have a bunch of money parked, not a bunch, but enough parked in Bank of America that what am I doing? I'm pulling that out into DeFi um, and it should have a credit card attached to it because I, I don't see a point in it being sitting inside of Bank of America anymore. It should sit inside of a bank that... Um, is focused on crypto or inside of DeFi wallets where we have good control of the the funds. Yeah, I, I, and again, not not finan- never financial advice, but I just moved a bunch of money uh, into a various loan protocols and and earning, uh, you know, twenty to eighty percent APY, um, you know, on stable coins. And I think that's a really you know really really dynamic difference that people don't understand. Richard, what's what what's uh, one thing that you think is just going to be that that aha moment for for a lot of you know no coiners? I I would say right now. Well. Look, I'm going to talk about games, uh, you, but you probably uh, you probably guessed that. Um, I think uh, the the revolution that is about to happen in the way that people play online games um, and those become real through crypto technology and NFTs um, is something that anybody who participates, and we're talking about you know you see sixty five billion dollars a year, eighty billion dollar a year industry. Uh, so you know we have casual gamers who play mobile, we have more dedicated gamers maybe who play on PC or console. I mean, the way that they engage uh, with their uh, games is going to change maybe bit by bit over the next six months, but certainly over the next uh, couple of years is going to be substantially different um, in a couple of ways. I mean, the um, the items that you uh, play with in game are suddenly going to become unlocked from the games themselves. You'll be able to trade person to person um, just as you might do with Pokemon or uh, Magic the Gathering or you know, any type of card-based games, which are kind of the, uh, the current uh, paradigm, really, for many of the games that are coming out. Um, but then also, I mean, we've, we've seen, it's, we may get on to talk about the metaverse a little bit, but gaming has, has a very mature metaverse in and, in and of itself. So we've, we've developed over the last 10 years huge communities of people who create... Uh, fun and engaging and rewarding experiences for one another within these game worlds. Uh, Some people contribute more than others, uh, but at the moment, all of the value really accrues to the game publisher. Um, Fair enough, they publish a game, but the idea that if you're contributing to one of these communities, you can begin to receive some value from them yourself, I think is is a huge change to the way that these these wider 
uh, sort of metaverse style games uh, affect people's lives. So that's, uh, I think, you know, those are, that's, that's the kind of use case that people will. Yeah. Absolutely. And, you know, I can expand on, expand on that just a hair because, you know, I've got a, two, two boys and they're actually sitting on the couch right here right now. And they've spent hundreds, if not thousands of dollars on Fortnite skins. Um, yeah. and, the, and, and listen, I, I knew what they were doing. It, it, they don't ask for, for much along those lines and they do their chores. And if they want a, a skin for a game, they're like, okay, great. It doesn't do anything. It has no value. Um, and it goes, goes to the developer as it's a free to play game. But, but the thought that they would be able to buy these skins, trade them with their friends, sell them, um, you know, and recoup something. And again, while still providing value to the game and to the ecosystem, uh, means a lot. And I can also say that, that the identity that, that people are starting to put into NFTs, you know, if, if you find one that you really love, being able to play it in Fortnite plus other games would be, you know, a dynamic change for these kids. Completely. And I mean, you, um, when you say they don't have any value, I mean, they're, they're cosmetic, but the fact is we do have, personal, let me say personal relationships with our gaming identities, meaning there's huge numbers of hours. I mean, I'm a long-time gamer, which is why I'm so excited to be in this space, but you, um, that there is, there is a reality to the gaming world when it's done well. Um, and the fact that that can have more of an effect now on, on the outside world, you can trade, you can engage with your friends in a different way. I think it's, um, it's hugely powerful and it's going to bring in people who, possibly don't care at all about the underlying tech. I think that's the exciting thing. It's a use case where people just aren't going to care, but they can see what they can do. They're going to engage with it. They're going to have fun. I think that's that's going to open up some of this tech. Uh, yeah, and I, and I really want to circle back around to that statement at some point, Jessica, which is that they're not going to care about the tech. Because right now, everyone that's in, in Web3 mm-hmm. cares about the tech. Like, But there's no one running around you know, Web2 going, oh, my God, you're hosted on Amazon S3 and not on Azure? Like, how how could you? Like, you know, and right now, it's like, what chain are you on? What, you know, it's so I really am looking forward to the the this a lot of this disappearing and becoming more about the user experience and less about um you know the the, the tribes i guess I, it would be the easy way to say richard we've uh, seen that yeah but i have a question for you richard just on the spectator portion of the games i gotta i gotta dig on this a little bit because i, it, I think it's wise to admit your mistakes because when you admit when you've made a mistake then you know maybe you can get it right the next time and i had the opportunity to invest in twitch early on um, and I didn't see how that was going to become a thing, <laughs> um, much to, uh, my shame and chagrin. Uh, my, my husband thought it was going to be a really big thing and told me all the reasons why, and I just couldn't grasp it. So, um, in, in the interest of, of trying to learn from my mistakes this time around, how, how do you think the spectator portion is going to evolve for the, this new generation of gaming? That's a really interesting question. I think it's, um, I mean, the spectator portion is part of uh, this kind of ecosystem that sits around the games. So you have watching people play games, um, some fantastic content online on Twitch. I mean, YouTube is another great source of, of gaming content. Um, what I would what I would hope is that the we find the gameplay in these NFT-based games um, play to own games is as engaging and as watchable uh, as in any other game. First, first and foremost, that that's the, the key piece is that these should be worth watching. Um, and then I think the fact that they are play to own, they're connected into the sort of N- NFT economy. Um, it allows 
innovation around the game economy in a, in a much more open way than currently. Currently, um, we'll find great content creators um, receiving sort of direct value from the way that they're playing um, rather than, you know, at the moment you sort of have sponsorship deals, you have subscription and tipping within the Twitch platform. It'd be great to see people who are making entertaining content re realize value from that, from the community in a, in a much wider set of ways. And because adding the NFT component into the game sort of allows, like I said, innovation around the economy of the game. Um, I would hope to see some fantastic models emerge so content creators get rewarded better and, and, and in different ways. And we also see um, you know, new ways of engaging with the games that we can't imagine at this point. So that's, uh, that's not a very specific answer, but um, I think that it's, the, it's, it's the fact that the, get the value in the game is available outside the game and is available for innovation by the community is what's going to uh, is what's going to make the difference. So it's going to be a really interesting couple of years, as I said. Awesome. Alex, the, the same question, but slightly different, because you're a little bit more of business-to-business -business <clears throat> profile. You know, how, how should a CTO of, of, a, of a Fortune 1000 company be thinking of blockchain? So I think the, the main thing that I would look at uh, is probably... Uh, where is, let's say, uh, not the gap, but where you can combine the fiat liquidity or the classic technology uh, company to what is happening right now in Web3. And I, if I were to zoom out a bit, uh, this will probably add an echo to what Richard uh, has been saying uh, a few minutes ago, is that if you look at a transition from Web1 web to Web2, is this part was initially read only, then went to you can write, you can uh, write blog posts. So it kind of enabled the uh, creative community. And the fact that now with blockchain, uh, it evolved to uh, industries, creative industries, uh, with the NFTs, with the metaverse. I think this really created like uh, the flexibility and enables more interaction mostly because it enables new segments to play with the technology and not care too much about the tech inside it. So I think the fact that these kind of groups, like in the gaming, in the NFTs, the creative industry, get to play with this technology really adds a brainstorming and a lot of new use cases that appear right now. And I think as a CTO, I would probably look at how the technology is bent into uh, this kind of new use cases that start to appear. appear. Uh, so here I excluded uh, on purpose the security part because uh, as you have mentioned, it might be like an inhibitor at the start for the innovation for new use cases, but that's also a very uh, important part. For example, uh, if you look at the, let's say the metaverse and what is building right now, it can, it can easily be turned into the next Cambridge Analytica scandal because all the activity that happened in Meta, in Facebook, and the uh, metadata that a company would gather from all those interactions, you can now gather that information from the, let's say, uh, your behavior and how you interact with uh, in-game NFT collectibles. So this is also a very important part, but I think it's somewhere in, they're on the same level, but I think it's best to start with the innovation and the use cases and then strengthen the security, not to inhibit the, the innovation. 
Perfect. <clears throat> Perfect. So Jessica, I'm going <clears> to <throat> dive, dive into a, a, you know, we'll see if we can fire a little debate off here. Um, and I really want to talk about proof of work versus proof of stake. It's a, it's a common uh, thing that we hear all the time that the proof of stake is superior. Uh, proof of work is outdated. And, and so I, I'd really like to kind of ask, and we'll go in reverse order. And so Alex, you're, you're up, you know, with it, there's always those trade-offs, you know, proof of work. We have, you know, Bitcoin to, to at this point has, has yet to be broken. There's yet to be any issues. We we've seen that it's, it has performed, you know, under, under duress, under changes of entire countries, um, you know, regulations, and it, it, it has survived and to date has, has not had any hacks, uh, on it. Proof, proof of stake. We we've seen some bridges and some other things recently, uh, in the news that have, have had some troubles. And, um, so, you know, what, what's your thoughts on, what it will take or to, to keep, um, to kind of get that gold standard for, for proof of stake to, to live up to where proof of work is today. I think it, it, it's going to take some time. Uh, and I recently, uh, read, a, a paper published by Vitalik about, uh, his protecting the, let's say the Bitcoin maximalist. And what he said in that, uh, blog post was that, uh, the Bitcoin maximalist culture is that they start simple and they keep it simple on purpose. And what they do, why they do that, is because they are very aware that uh, right there it's an adversarial uh, environment. So it's it's very Byzantine. You cannot uh, assume that there is going to be friends or uh, somebody is going to respect the protocol just because it's his responsibility. You have to assume that somebody is going to break it. And I think that part of Bitcoin maximalism is something that really kept uh, safe the proof of work so far because it's really, really simple. And I, another thing that uh, Vitalik pointed out in that article that, uh, uh, let's say, sparked my interest was uh, it's how, how he put it was the increasing complexity risk. And because you start building all these kind of protocols, and also because now I think, in my opinion, the feature of crypto shifts from user to user to ecosystem to ecosystem, chain to chain. And here is where the bridges come in part. Uh, if you look only at the hacks that happened this year, uh, I think the wormhole uh, bridge on Solana had like 350 million hack. And more recently, Axie Infinity had like 600 million. This is 1 billion in total in three months this year. And both of them was due to their how they set up their validators and the bridging between how they took decisions uh, between one chain to another. So I think this is going to be a, a big issue in the future. How can you start, uh, how can you add more, let's say, features in terms of scalability? as is for uh, proof of stake, but maintain that simple uh, technology and how it works such that you, if, if you break it, does not affect the entire ecosystem. It does not have this systemic uh, complexity. Awesome. Uh, Richard? Um, well, look, I'm not sure how much I'm going to be able to add to uh, to Alex's answer. Um, I certainly understand enough about uh, cryptography to know what I don't understand in terms of the relationship between proof of stake and proof of work. Um, I, I think um, maybe just a, maybe a couple of points. I mean, one, I think it's it's a it's an issue that has to be solved. 
So proof of work and the inefficiency of proof of work is a barrier to adoption in the broader community because people think about the environmental impacts of um, you know, large scale proof of work. So uh, that is something that needs to be addressed one way or another. It is the most common thing that comes up in terms of you know, why, you know, if you're a crypto skeptic, why aren't you involved? Why aren't you more involved? Even for people working in the industry, it comes up a lot. Um, and the second thing is, I mean, it, to, I mean really to, to Alex's point, the it isn't that proof of stake cannot be made secure. It is, if you look at some of the attack vectors um, of the recent breaches, there's, um, it, it's always easy in hindsight, but you'd argue that uh, there's there's just a level of diligence, if you like, that I'm sure that yeah, everybody's working hard, there's brilliant people involved, but it's we are, we're learning to close some of these doors as one does in security. Um, and the, the sort of a base attack on the protocol that we've seen is not the only attack vector. It's not the only security threat that we that we find in crypto. So I, we will get better. Um, and I think it is a problem that we have to solve because proof of work is not viable long term um, if we want this to be something that, that everybody's comfortable using and that everybody wants to use. Awesome. Marshall, you, you've got a number of bridges. You, you, you build these out yourself. So what, uh, let, let's start with, because I like the bridge question, but let's talk about the kind of proof of work versus the proof of stake. And then if you wouldn't mind expanding on, on really your thoughts around that, that, that bridge hack that just happened. Yeah, I'll, I'll start with saying I'm a big fan of Bitcoin. I was very early involved in Bitcoin mining and early Bitcoin community. So I say this with all the love. Um, we don't need proof of uh, work anymore. Um, it's unnecessary. It, it's, it's wasting a lot of energy. And there's a lot of people, you know, if I was at the Bitcoin conference right now, I wouldn't get on stage and say this because I'd get a can thrown at me or something because it's just, it, it's kind of semi-religious, right? It's almost kind of like a, uh, I don't want to call it a cult, but it is kind of like this. I say it in a loving way, right? We have these different factions inside. We have different sports teams inside of crypto, right? And the Bitcoin group is the oldest group and there's all different uh, flavors of Bitcoin community, right? Um, you have your hardcore, there can only be Bitcoin people. And then you have, you know, like your Eric Voorhees, like hardcore Bitcoin guy, but loves altcoins, loves blockchain, just loves it all, right? Um, and you've got your your pomp and then you've got your, um, your uh, I guess, um, uh, Raul Paul is a good example, right? Uh, you've got your different flavors of Bitcoin people. So I'm a Bitcoin guy for sure, but I'm also a crypto guy first and foremost. And so I just believe that we don't need it anymore. I've seen enough and I work in the space enough to know that we don't need it. But the thing is, is that it's really hard to change and just as hard as it is to change the banking infrastructure in the United States and the world in terms of blockchain technology, it's just as hard to change the incumbent blockchain technology in the way that it is. So everything is paired to BTC. I just was noticed, oh, Proton went down a little bit. No, Bitcoin went down and brings everything with it or goes up. So we watch Bitcoin. Will it come off of proof of work? I don't know, because it's kind of like a, we all have like the, the gun to each other or whatever. And, uh, you know, who's going to not do proof of work mining first, right? By the way, I'd like to add Bitcoin was actually technically kind of hacked in late 2010 or maybe it was early 2011. There was a malicious fork uh, and it was the first, uh, I guess it was the first mining fork of all time it was quickly fixed 
but that did happen many years ago. Um, now it'd be very hard to change that because at the time there wasn't the mining cartel that there is today and ASIC chips and, you know, weren't where they are today. Um, I do think that there is security in it, but in the original Bitcoin ethos was actually that it was a worthless, it didn't have any place to trade. There was no merchants using it. And so the original idea was kind of not only was the consensus mechanism, but it cost you money for that hardware and electricity. So it's kind of like the alchemical transmutation. But now if we have more efficient systems, can we do it? And I would say Proton and EOS IO and Cosmos are proof that that works. And I would also say Polkadot is proof that that works. And, and, um, you know, number seven, Number two, number three, number seven cryptocurrencies, these are multi-double-digit billion market caps are secured by proof of work. If it was hackable, don't you think somebody would just take the money? I feel pretty strongly about this. And so, yeah, I would love to see Bitcoin go proof of stake. We can go proof of stake and we don't have to burn this kind of energy and we can lose all of that negative criticism towards us. And I, I know I'm going to take a lot of heat for saying this, but it's the truth. And I've been watching this from the very beginning. Uh, Jay Kwan, the founder of Cosmos and Tendermint Consensus, is a good friend of mine. And I was you know, supporting him and watching him from Tendermint from the early days. We've all been working on this for a long time. It's possible. You can do it. And Proton is proof of that. And Cosmos is proof of that. And you know, check it out. Look, what it, things get momentum and they get no inertia at the same time, right? It's that that old adage about uh, turning a container ship, right? Bitcoin has become the container ship of crypto. So I, 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 I hear what you're saying, Marshall, about being able to do it for some of these new protocols. What would it actually take to do anything with Bitcoin at this point? What are the mechanisms by which that could actually happen, just, you know, helping edge in, in, in as much layman's terms as possible for our folks. Yeah, I, so I would put it on the world leaders. We're at that stage now where Bitcoin and blockchain is at the stage where it is a, it is an international topic. It is now known by most people, even if they don't have cryptocurrency, if you say the word Bitcoin or cryptocurrency or Proton or something, oh, I've, I've heard of that, right? So people know about it, Dogecoin, people know about it, Metal. Um, so now we're at that stage where people know about it, they're starting to become familiar with it. We're not at the phase where everybody's used it, but every world leader is aware of it. Um, central banks um, are looking at it and CBDCs and um, and some uh, uh, countries like El Salvador are putting it on the balance sheet. So it's officially fair to say that it's an issue of governments and world leaders uh, to look at the opportunities to uh, promote uh, efficient blockchains and blockchains that integrate reg tech. And I just, I just keep saying it over and over. Efficiency, regulation, technology, give the government credits, tax breaks for startups willing to do this and to put energy into it. Um, you know, promote those companies. Uh, I think it was a shame that our president didn't really promote Tesla. But then recently, I think the White House finally gave a nod to Tesla for manufacturing EVs in the United States and being a leading manufacturer. So in the same way, we need world leaders, we need governments to kind of step up and say, we're going to give the credits towards entrepreneurs, tax breaks, incentives, work together with their various government agencies, Office of Innovation, to help further these blockchains and involvement in banking, in government, identity, uh, by 
by basically kind of giving them the the green carpet, rolling that out for the companies that are doing it right. And it's not just the energy efficiency, but it's also the identity and the reg tech. Um, because, you know, when I launched Fiat or identity on Proton last week, I got a lot of flack. What are you doing? And I said, not anything that we're not already doing. I want to make it better so I can easily through the blockchain revoke my credentials. Somebody said, well, you can't change your private key. And I said, actually, you can on Proton. I'm working on this, right? So uh, it's, it comes down to world leaders. It comes down to uh, policymakers. And I want to commend and give a shout out to Senator Pat Toomey for introducing his stablecoin legislation yesterday. I think it's excellent. Um, it takes the right leaders, and we need to elect the right leaders and support those in government that are moving in the right direction. Okay, but just to be clear, they can't actually go change anything with Bitcoin. And when we talk about the leaders, I, I know an awful lot about how politics and regulation and the government uh, in, in our country and other countries work. I, I run a public company, and we work in a, in a regulated space. So there's there's not one set of worldwide leaders. I mean, there's the UN, but they only have certain directives of power. There are different summits. There are different trade associations. And even, you know, within our government uh, here in the U.S., we've got three branches with different pieces of control, and it takes forever to get federal movement uh, on things. So if it, just making sure I understand, you're saying that we can incent the newer protocols that are doing this in an efficient way. Not that we can necessarily go pull back that container ship of Bitcoin. Yeah, I would not. And so I saw some regulation in EU and I'm still kind of learning more about it, but they were talking about banning unhosted wallets that don't have identity. And now I'm not for that. I am very much for adding identity to unhosted walls, to recover your keys, to protect your information, to make onboarding one tap and easier and better for crypto, right? Um, but no, we can't force anything. Uh, we can't tell cryptocurrency miners that what I would hate to see is the opposite of kind of what I'm preaching, which is, you know, how mining is illegal, right? We're going to fine you. It's, you know, if you're water, your grass at this time, if you mine at this time, you know, that's illegal. Well, obviously I'm all for the environment. So don't, you know, water your grass during the middle of the heat. But uh, in, in terms of mining, I don't think we can force it. What we want to do is we want to incentivize the right technology. So, you know, do a government grant 250, like do a, you know, uh, open up your office of innovation to do, give government grants for green blockchain, right? And let's do government research and papers on that and incentivize that. Uh, the last thing I want to see is a law that bans non-custodial wallets or proof of work mining, right? Let's make it clear what the incentives are, not only through the technology and the financial incentive, but also the public perception incentive and the, you know, it's been tough for crypto in terms of regulations. Let's flip it around. Let's make it easier for the things that we know we, where we need to go, right? And so outside of the reg tech on the energy side, just incentivize green blockchain, right? And, and I see a lot of policymakers leaning towards this. And I'm not at Miami in Miami right now, but I have heard a couple of a couple speeches that we're talking about. Some that got booed actually for doing that. But, you know, look, we can have our power, we can have our proof of stake. And in reality, it's like the yin, 
yin and yang, we're probably never going to, power's probably never going to go away. It's probably always going to be there in some form. What's going to dominate? Which is going to be more prevalent? I'm voting on proof of stake. Ethereum's already number two. They're switching to proof of stake. I would, I think it'd be very cool. And I would cheer Bitcoin core devs on and Bitcoin miners if they switched to proof of stake. But recognizing that it would be such a massive, monumental transition, that's not something that happens overnight. And also, you know, shout out to the guys over at Decred working on hybrid proof of work, proof of stake, right? Um, I think that there's a place for it and was a place for it. And now it's proof of stakes time. But but let's not force anything. I don't want to see any regulations passed that outlaw anything in regards to crypto unless it's harming people. Marshall, I'm going to be holding my breath in anticipation of positive regulation in the U.S. towards anything that's coming down the pipe. Well, support Senator Tumia's new stablecoin act because he's moving in the right direction. I, if if uh, anyone's watching, you got his contact info. We'd love to bring him on. We just had Yang on uh, a little while ago, and I think it'd be a fabulous conversation. We'd love to hear his, his opinions and thoughts around it. Um, Richard, I'm going to pivot over to you. And and the word green got brought up, and it didn't take long for us to get there. And and so when we talk about the metaverse, I think a lot of people really don't understand what the word means. And this is the world that you live in, and so you're going to be excited to talk about it. Right now, we're in a, a little meta- metaverse right here. It's 2D. We we can speak to each other. We're we're all around the world. You're in Australia or somewhere nearby, um, and and we're able to to communicate clearly, concisely. We we can make eye contact and whatnot. And so the thoughts around you know the. Re- reduction of business travel, the reduction of travel overall, like meaning that you can, you can accomplish things or experience, have experiences without kind of the, the ecological, you know, jets and planes and boats and everything else that people get concerned of, you know, when do you think that, or how do you think that becomes a real concept? Uh, Look, I think particularly around uh, travel and uh, interaction in the professional context, Largely, I think it now is. Um, and I'm, I don't know, I have a slight problem with the term metaverse, like I have to use it because everyone now does, but it just seems like we are branding something that has existed already you know, and been called slightly different things for, you know, for at least the last 15, if not 20 years. But it, from, a, from a professional point of view, you know, the pandemic for all of us was a crash test of can we survive without doing this stuff? You know, can we be efficient in business without everybody coming into an office? Yes. Certainly here in Australia, I mean, it's um, we had long lockdowns um, and everything just kind of carried on, right? It's people were productive. There's, we realize what we miss from personal interaction, but um, there's 80 to 90% of what was uh, mandatory for many employees is now much more discretionary. I think there's that question of choices in most. And it, it'll be the same for business travel. So in my past life, I would uh, be on a plane to Europe at least once a quarter for a board meeting. Um, I'd be there for a couple of days and it would probably take me two weeks of productivity to recover in terms of you know time and energy and so on. It was really valuable talking to people, but is it worth two weeks? Mm-hmm. You know, I don't know. There'll be lots of people looking at their uh, frequent flyer points and frequent flyer cards and wondering if, you know, how, how are we going to sustain this? But uh, look, so I, I think it's the, the tech is now real. It has been real for a while, and we we needed the incentive to prove it. Um, I think from an entertainment point of view, uh, it's been there for much longer. Um, that's can, yeah. can you can you help a, a little bit with? And I, I I get into this argument all the time. 
people are like, oh, VR has been around forever. You can go into VR and you can chat with people. Why does blockchain make that dynamic difference of interaction? For in, in what sense? So when you have a metaverse that, that's blockchain enabled, meaning there's cryptocurrencies, yeah. NFTs, all the tech around it, why why is a metaverse that builds itself on blockchain tech going to be more valuable than cool. than a game that you can just see people in? Yeah, I, so I, I think the point is the without something like the blockchain tech, um, you the all you've created, if you like, is a is a walled garden, is a fully enclosed space that's entirely at the discretion of the uh, developer. But it's even if uh, even if you wanted to, you can't take things out. You, you know the the way in which you can interact in the space and the objects in it are uh, you you have much less of a choice. So what attachment to something like blockchain tech does is allow uh, those digital assets, the things that exist in the space that you interact with. Um, to, uh, to you have a choice about how you interact with them and how you use them that aren't necessarily you know programmed in by the developer of that space. So they so yeah. Oh, keep going. So so an example I, I would you know like and again there's there's games that you work on now where you know and let's go back to Fortnite. In Fortnite, you get to choose from the skins that they give you, and that's it. The the theoretical ability to come into a blockchain enabled game is if you have an asset in your wallet that is that is the correct format and right now it's usually GLB or FBX that it would it would automatically render in a game even though the developers never thought of that is is that where we're seeing things going? Yeah, look, I I think cross game interaction is is much harder than you know it's kind of rendering a, a texture on a on a set of um, polygons you have. I mean, there's a whole set of uh, licensing arrangements and you know various. It's it's probably not that simple like we may be going in that direction i think what uh what is much more likely and what we're seeing short term and what we're enabling at polemos is is the intra-game interaction between groups of players so it's much more um you have sort of scarcity dynamics where certain items are hard to come by maybe very valuable um if without the trading dynamic without the nft piece those can only belong to one player but wouldn't it be great if you can borrow that for a day? Like you have this item that allows you to play in a particular way. You've seen a video about it. You've seen someone on Twitch, you know, with particular styles of gameplay that unless you have the thing you can't do, rather than having to go out and, you know, buy one or farm for three weeks and hope that the RNG gods bless you and you get a drop, you can actually go somewhere, pay a little bit of rental money, get it in your wallet, play with it for a day, have some fun, Actually, I'm done now. Give it back and then move on. That's that interaction, uh, that idea of trading sort of within the game universe is probably where we're at more than, you know, out of the box intra-game interactivity where um, all of this careful balancing and so on that game developers put in gets broken because of, you know, you've imported something from one game into another. Perfect. Perfect. You know, we were talking about these these bridge hacks a second ago, and I think bridges are, are one of the most important aspects right now of, of Web3. And so I, I'd like to kind of jump back to that a little bit. And, and can you describe, you know, what a bridge is, why it's useful, and, and why they need to be one of the, the core features of, of any and all chains? And Marshall, I'm coming to you after this. 
Yeah, I think I would probably uh, choose the wormhole bridge because I did a deep dive on that hack. So I think in, in my opinion, and I'm not an expert on this subject, I'm only diving in through the security lens. In in my opinion, there are some kind of centralization, uh, how can I say, uh, centralized groups of validators who can uh, impose the trust or at least put the, the stamp that you are doing an operation from one chain to another. So just to give a short example, if I want to bridge some, uh, let's say, USDT from uh, Ethereum to Solana, I need to deposit some USDT into some kind of smart contract. And these validators that actually build up the bridge would have to somehow sign all of them and agree on a consensus that I have deposited this amount of USDT on Ethereum such that they can mint it on Solana and send it to my wallet on Solana that I, I control it. So I think this the bridge is mainly composed by these validators. Uh, in most of the cases, they are uh, centralized. So this, I think, is the weak point where uh, work still needs to be done, not only in uh, about technology as it was in the case with Wormhole, because they uh, the issue there was with the cryptographic primitive, with which, which with which they verified the signature, so that was the bug right there. But I think there is also a lot of work to be done around uh, the incentives, how to uh, maintain the consensus of their validators who actually port that consensus to one uh, chain to another. So that's my view around what happened with the bridges and why they are important. I think there are the weak, the sweet spot and the weak point right now when it comes to chain-to-chain communication. Fabulous. Marshall, uh, you've got a number of bridges in place. And, and, um, you know, what's your thoughts on on the evolution of that technology and kind of what's what's the problems with them today? Yeah. um, So I think that uh, what we've seen are a lot of risks around bridging using oracles, um, bridging using systems where we want to be native, uh, so inter-blockchain communication with Cosmos and so forth. A lot of these things are very new. And when I say new, I mean they are very new. Um, you know, I could go get into a concept car and take it out on the 405 and see if I can get over 100 miles an hour. If it breaks apart and I die in a ball of flames, am I an idiot? Probably. Um we should not be driving things that are not ready to drive. We should not be pushing those things that are not ready to drive to their max limits of what they can do. Thor chain, really cool chain. It's early, right? So we should, TVL should be low. We should use it, use it cautiously. I missed the day. I think it was at least five years ago when people used to put, this is experimental DeFi software. Nowadays, it's all about YOLO testing in production, and it's like a humble brag. But, you know, that comes with real risks. And I'm not a big believer right now in trust, what they call trustless bridges. You're going to find out real quick where the trust is centralized in this early tech. Not to say that it's not really cool. It's just not ready for prime time yet. So DeFi is built on custodialized, wrapped assets. That's how all of DeFi is built. And it really drives me bonkers when people say, 
um, oh, well, you know, that's wrapped Bitcoin. That doesn't count or whatever. Well, there's several billion dollars. Does your Bitcoin not count if you deposit into MetalPay or Coinbase? No, you just have someone else custodying the keys. So where should DeFi be today? I believe that it should be with wrapped assets. I believe that it should be with custodied institutions. We're not ready for trustless bridging yet, and someday we will be. But let's not put a half a billion dollars or whatever into something with oracles. And also, if you do have a half a billion dollars in your TVL, in your bridges, you should be routinely auditing. You should be routinely pen testing. And it's really frustrating for me to see people have these hacks go down and then go, oh, don't worry, wag me, we're going to make it, we're going to build. But you know what? It already happened. I'm all for the positive vibes and the like, we're going to build through the storm. But like, do we also have to put the stick in the spoke while we're riding it and then go, man, what happened? That's crazy. How did I fall off my bike? Can't believe the stick stops this wheel, but it does. And so we can't, we can't do it. We can't keep doing this. We can't keep using these so-called trustless bridges. They're not really trustless. They're using oracles and it's very cool. But until we have more peer review, more um, research, and we can really uh, say that it's, it's something that's good, it's just not ready yet. So XBTC, WBTC, USDC, and all the most popular stable coins, by the way, are custody. USDT used to be the most popular. That's just because it was real coin. It was called real coin in 2014. It evolved over time, became Tether, and it never really had it. it uh, Tether is kind of a victim of its own success. It it couldn't even get bank accounts when they wanted to. So if they wanted to, they couldn't have. Now they're like, well, we've got this, you know, completely private uh, fe- uh, f- uh, Federal Reserve thing going on, which is kind of dangerous, you know, in itself. But I'm not knocking Tether. I mean, it's a big part of the system. But I do like the custodially vaulted coin. So I like that Circle has USDC partnered with Signature Bank. And I know that the money is with Signature. We're a partner of Signature. I know that they're a great institution. I feel good about that. I feel good about BitGo being one of the top custody, earliest custody providers, which, you know, I, I know the founders over there um, and and was with them as, as, as we were all kind of starting our first crypto startups. I like that these relationships are kind of the cornerstone of DeFi and we will always have trust. We can have crypto, but crypto, all crypto does is cut out the middleman and allow us to trust each other easier in, an, in a so-called trustless environment. But you can still get scammed by someone on the other side. You can still get hacked. So trustless, it's not really trustless. We need wrapped assets and we need more licensed custodians to bring in those assets. And it's going to be like Bitcoin. Your biggest assets in DeFi in the future probably won't be bridge assets. They're most likely going to be your WBTCs, your USDCs, your XBTCs, and so forth. I think that's the way that it's going to go. I do think that there's a place for these other, um, for the trustless bridge. But you know what? Here's a big prediction. Sorry, I keep going on here. But you know what's going to happen with these trustless bridges? When there's a big hack, you go and you check the wormhole because that's where they're going to go. And they're going to go into DAI and they're going to go into currencies that are completely uncensorable. Now, I'm not saying we shouldn't have those, but I am saying that we should build it the right way. There's a, a term um, that was kind of coined at the FDIC, um, and uh, it's a great term, responsible innovation. Um, I like it because I think that crypto needs more of it, responsible innovation. Because if we have these hacks and we keep doing this stuff, no one's going to ever come over. And 
no one in, in mainstream, late majority, late adopters, which is the most people, they're not going to come over. And our crypto games, our play to earn, all that stuff is at risk. And I'm saying that because we just saw $600 million on the number one play to earn bridge get hacked. And again, same issue as Wormhole. It's the oracles. So oracles are not really ready for prime time. There's promise, not ready for prime time. Let's not drive cars on the highway that are not meant to be driven on the highway or at all. Jessica, what's your thoughts? I, you know, Alex, I actually want to ask you, I just want to get, I try to keep it not too technical because if I just think back to the, the history of the internet, the history of tech and being connected and, and hacking, and probably if we go back to the history of all cons ever in the history of the world, the, the most common one and the one that you only hear about is, hey, let's not, you know, don't share your information, shred your information. It's all about dumpster diving, all about social engineering. It's about getting people's keys. And we spend probably, and rightfully so, 80% of our time talking about that. But we've talked a little bit today about different projects connecting to each other and that they all connect via something called an application programming interface or an API. And I want you to talk to us about the security of that and what worries you and what do you feel totally confident uh, in with these projects connecting to each other? Lots of, lots of downtime and high availability uh, issues. So if all the APIs are centralized, for example, if you look at the Infura or Alchemy, some of the providers for the RPC, JSON RPC interfaces. So this is like uh, the main point that you can enter into the blockchain. Either you write uh, data, you submit transactions, or to read information from the, the specific chain, you go through these APIs. So if you only rely on a provider that is centralized uh, and he goes down, or if the cloud provider on which he's relying goes down, you also go down. And this happened, I think, uh, many times last year and in the past years. So when Amazon Web Services had an outage, uh, I think Infura went down for the entire day. Uh, DYDX, which is a decentralized exchange, also went down, which is kind of funny because as a decentralized exchange you should be decentralized you should be you should be up 100% of the time right and because you are you are relying on a centralized provider for the api to access the chain and he has an, an issue on his side you depend on his issues i think that's also a thing that needs to be improved in the future to ensure that the apis through uh, an application or wallet interacts with the blockchain needs to be in this to be done in a decentralized way. I just Where want to chime in. Where are you most worried? Yeah, please. I, I was just going to say, as we're talking here, I'm actually pinging my team about an API being down for Proton. So <laughs> it happens all the time. And uh, I, I just want to add that if you're in crypto and you're building stuff like wallets and exchanges and, and, and NFTs and games, if you're really deep into it, view it as a uh, as kind of a public service and also a good security thing for you to try and build your own oracles and get your own nodes up. But if you can't, 
we're all business. We're all business owners here. We're all entrepreneurs or owner, owners here and, and owners here. You have to fake it till you make it. You have to pull all the pieces together. There's no shame in working with providers, but just know that there's some risk and downtimes. Well, no, no shame in basic reliability engineering. Like don't rely on one region of any cloud provider, for example. So there's just some real basics here that uh, that we need to you know, we need to make sure everybody's aware of. I was just going to say, if you get bad chain data, that's the biggest risk, right? If 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 one provider was feeding everyone chain data and a, an attacker hacked the provider, which has never we haven't seen that happen yet, that's how you could have like a really big hack. And I can tell you, many years ago, it was like 2013 or no 2014 or something like that. Um, uh, no, actually, no, it was around maybe 2012, 2013 local bitcoins, which used to be kind of a popular crypto exchange, which is P2P crypto exchanging before there were a lot of exchanges out there got hacked. It was crazy. These guys hung out outside their office in uh, Finland and went into the dumpster, pieced together pieces of like shredded paper and were able to get enough information to call the host provider of the local Bitcoin site and get them to change it. So it was like a fake website and when you deposit it would just go straight into the hacker's wallet so people were like for a couple hours uh they were people were depositing it and at the time uh i think local bitcoins lost like 800 bitcoin and the value was around 100 bucks or something or 70 dollars and they said you know um it's uh or no sorry it was more than that it was it was maybe a thousand it had jumped it was around a thousand so and they lost like a couple hundred thousand dollars or something like that and they're like i don't know we might not <laughs> this is a pretty big blow you think about how much that bitcoin's worth now and all of this stuff um there are risks to centralized providers so you have to be really careful and no matter how decentralized you are there could be somebody uh going through your trash piecing things together calling your host and we're all at the whim of the web two hosts so when the hacks go down, that's usually there was a big one recently with Celsius, right? They got Badger Dow, and that's how they got them. So yep. So I want to pose a question to you guys, and and I think that for each of your industries, it, the answer may be a little different. Uh, and I want to talk about speed, TPS, and and really throughput on on making this happen. Where do we need to be for mainstream global adoption? And when I say mainstream global adoption, that 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 web two has is essentially no longer necessary that the traditional rails swift is is kind of archaic and and visa is is moved over to blockchain what what would a chain speed while staying secure need to be and and can that happen to to manage a, a, a global economy uh marshall i'm gonna go ahead and start with you because you're right on that yeah. Um, so it's got to be faster than seven to 14 transactions per second. I'll say that much. <laughs> and it's got to have fast finality. That's another thing people don't talk about. People talk about transactions per second, but if you don't have finality, I mean, I can write a thousand page book in a week, but it's all gibberish. It's not like you're going to enjoy it. So if you don't have finality, transactions per second mean nothing, right? It's like, it's like market cap without liquidity. Right. So good finality. We need to be under one second finality. So we're already there. I think in terms of the finality, we're there. A lot of chains have, you know, fast finality um, transactions per second. I don't think that it has to rival visas, you know, 30,000 transactions per second out of the gate. It's, you know, everybody's focused on this and, you know, oh, can we get to a million, a hundred thousand transactions per second? Probably not out of the gate. 
I think that that's not really doesn't matter as much. We do need faster finality and we do need to be above a thousand TPS for a mainstream adoption to happen. Um, and once it does really happen, it could really ramp up very quickly. What I think is one of the other big problems is that the blockchains are, you know, once you create something, it's legacy, you're kind of cemented into it. And so depending upon how the governance works, upgrading all of that core software uh, to stay relevant at once everyone comes onto it, you're kind of stuck. And you see this with Ethereum where the gas fees are really high. So we come up with, you know, what they call layer two technologies to build on and bootstrap on top of these chains. I think that we need to be above at least, uh, I would say at least 2000, 3000 transactions per second. Um, I would say that we need fast fiat on ramps. We more than anything, we need the regulation, regulatory clarity, and the large mainstream partners like Stripe and Checkout.com and all of your fintech partners to integrate these technologies. And all signs are pointing to that with Stripe launching their new Web3 offering. I heard today Bolt.com just acquired Wire for $1.5 billion in stock and cash. All the right things are moving in that direction to create a single sign-on unified identity. Um, so that's we actually need the identity and the on-ramps more than we need the transaction speed. So Richard, I'm going to ask you a quick question and, and you know, from the, cause you're, you're actually building things and helping to really build on, on the chains. Are, are side chains a, a viable long term part of the ecosystem? Um, I, the short answer is yes. I mean, it, it's, um, there's some really interesting points coming out of, uh, the discussion in terms of what people actually need. Like we've spoken about, you know, custodial trust in certain cases. We're talking about transaction speeds, on ramps, and so on. And these are the uh, foundations of real utility for mass adoption. And then what we're also saying is, well, you can't actually do them natively on some of the underlying tech as it currently exists. You need something else on, you know, on top or to the side, or you know, however you want to, you, you want to draw your architecture diagram. So there's there's a really interesting. I think uh, tension emerging between what we have to do to deliver these functional elements in a crypto world and what we are choosing to retain of some of the underlying philosophies of the chain. So uh, the idea of completely trustless that Marsha was talking about a second ago, is that is that really something that mass adopters are going to care about or are they okay understanding that there's, you know, there may be one or a group of entities that they probably trust already in their daily lives who are backing this stuff up. Probably the latter, and in which case you can make some technology choices that deliver some of these additional functionalities. So, and we're seeing that on, you know, in gaming as well, where for utility within the game, for gameplay, can't do it on main chain. You need to use a layer two uh, of one sort or another in order to facilitate the, the gameplay, even if you're, you know, rinting, minting, NFTs and you're not retaining things in the game environment, you need a layer two to deliver some of the functionality. Um, so that tension, I mean, it's sort of, I, I think there's at least a plausible outcome over the next five, 10 years where uh, you almost get a layer two ecosystem that is or could be independent of the main chain. Um, because of the sorts of speed and functionality that are required by use cases that people actually need. And the question is, would anybody would, would anybody in that mass adoption cohort really care? Um, I'm not sure. Alex, do you, 
Do you think that gas fees are something that anyone should ever think about when they're when they're usual, utilizing a blockchain? Do do you buy into the there it's secure because it's expensive mindset? Uh, it might secure some of the things, but I don't think this should be uh, a thing that users should be aware. I think this should be hidden in behind the UI. Uh, users shouldn't be thinking at all about the gas costs and all this stuff. They were very useful at the beginning because they allowed the experts and people more acquainted with what's happening with the technology to be able to tweak the parameters to get a transaction going and so on. But in order to reach mass adoption, I think this kind of, uh, let's say, parameters should be hidden and optimized by the uh, user interface. Jessica, when, when, when we talk, I mean, and we talk about interfaces all the time and, and user interfaces, what do you what do you want to see wallets go to? You know that's that's the 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 bridge and the gap. I mean that's how people are going going to these and and clearly, like this is not the future. And I ledger, I, I love you. You're great, but 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 this is not what may, is going to happen mainstream. Where where do where do you think? And and then I'll let you pose the question to the panel. You know where do you feel that these wallets need to go to? Where you know your family and your and and your friends that have no there are no coiners today can feel comfortable with with self custody of their cryptocurrencies. It, there's some basics in tech that I think we need to to revert back to here and to think about. And one of the things that we talk about with all consumer apps is number of clicks, right? And I mean, we all know that when you try to do any type of transaction on a ledger, how many clicks does it take? It's a lot. <laughs> that would never fly if you were trying to sell to a B2B that this is the infrastructure you're going to offer and your, your line workers are going to use to run your business, right? So I think we've got to come back to some of those, those basic concepts of what are what are the number of clicks and and there's a little bit of a holy standard in software of you you want it down to to three or less so uh, it's one of the reasons why uh, we're such a fan uh, proton as we think that uh, that there's been a real a UI UX focus and again learning from the past uh, I didn't think AOL was going to be that successful I thought it was stupid and you know it <laughs> Everybody used it, and I mean, the next one was grandmas playing Oregon Trail. So, uh, so that's my my opinion is that we've got to get back to the very core basics of number of clicks, and uh, and I'd love to hear um, what our panelists think. I think at most two or three clicks should be more than enough to make a transaction and go it pass through. I know there are some work. Uh, there is some work in progress with uh, gasless transactions, how we can bundle, for example, on Ethereum and submit it to, to some private mempools to make sure they pass through without paying the gas, being someone else, uh, making someone else pay the gas for, for that transaction to pass through. So I think the steps would be mainly from the UI side to be able to... Uh, identify the right parameters to use when making the transactions. And when it means to uh, privacy and security and something that would make you, make you comfortable enough to make transactions, transactions if you are a person who didn't, 
let's say, uh, played with crypto uh, at all. I think wallets that enable social recovery, they are very important. I know that Vitalik touched repeatedly this point to be able to recover the keys. And I love the fact that Marshall mentioned about switching, uh, changing your private key. I love that idea. So I think that's a really important feature that needs to be brought to the mainstream. And I also think that migrating the the keys to a mobile wallet, because with the phone having in your hand, uh, it gives you that sense of security because you can see it, it's in your control. But I think there are also a lot of work needs to be done in that part because when it comes to mobile and hardware security, uh, there are two types of approaches. One is the strong box where you have like a dedicated chip that maintains the private key, very secure. It's uh, protected also by electromagnetic means. You cannot extract the key by other means, like uh, temperature variation or other things. But this is like 3 or 5% in the hardware in the mobile out there because 95% of 90%, they are mostly uh, trust execution environment-based implementations. So what this means is that there is a piece of software in the operating system that handles that for you and gives you the impression that it's secure. But in fact, all the operations are in the single uh, chip, in the same processor that also uh, is used when you play something on your phone mm. or you are downloading an application through other means than the official ones. So I think that are the points that needs to be touched in the future to help the mass adoption. So, so it just, to, I want to clarify this point. So you believe that to have a mass adoption of, of a secure wallet in your phone, you do need a separate chip or most likely a siloed part of that chip. Yes, I think that's, it's very important. And I mentioned that because there is a regulation here in Europe for a qualified signature. So it's the digital signature that has legal binding value. So one of the requirements in those areas, uh, if you want to qualify a device for that, it needs to be strong requirements regarding the electromagnetic uh, radiation that helps, uh, let's say, revealing the key through operations. So you need a lot of protection. And this is usually done by having a separate chip, secure element, dedicated only for cryptographic purposes. I love it, and I'm gonna I'm gonna throw that over to Marshall because you have experience in this uh, with yeah. WebAuth. I, I just wanted to add. Um, so we started in crypto with kind of the hardware wallet, with the introduction of the Tracer and the Ledger, and then other things came out like Keep Key, Key, and now there's Arculus, and there's all these different hardware wallets. Square is working now. Block is working on. I saw a picture of it on Twitter. They just shared it. And they're coming into all these cool form factors and different things like that. There's also YubiKey, which is very cool. And Yubi just launched their biometric YubiKey. But what I will say is that every phone has a secure element on it. Most Nowadays, most hardware devices, and not just phones, but all Apple uh, laptops and computers, most uh, Windows machines have the secure element in the notebook. Um, and so, and you can use Windows Hello to sign with that. You can sign on the MacBook with your touch fingerprints. Um, and so, what we need is better software to access the secure elements. And uh, WebAuth is pretty interesting. What we built with WebAuth.com and Proton is we access the secure element of your device, and we use a protocol known as WebAuthN, 
which can access the secure element on your device and sign with that element. So you don't really need a Tracer or a Ledger anymore because you can have the secure. If you want to add that extra level of security, I think that's that's fine. You have a, a kind of a dumb device that doesn't make phone calls or anything like that. You can say that it's cold because it's not powered up or it's not connected to anything. But I think in reality, uh, what you want is kind of a multi-device world. And that's what WebAuth allows you to do is to add, you can add a Tracer or a Ledger as a signed authorized device. And WebAuth N will allow you to access the secure element on the keychain. So now you can sign crypto transactions on Proton with other major cryptos like Bitcoin and stable coins like USDC, XUSDC with the secure element on your phone with your face or touch ID. And you don't have to buy an extra piece of hardware. That's what's going to take off for mainstream. No gas fees. And I already have a hardware wallet. It's called a cell phone. And guess what? Your paper, your, your leather wallet with your cards and all this stuff, it's gone. Give it five years, it'll be completely gone. And I hate to predict this too, but uh, hardware wallets are probably also going to go in a very radical direction where I, I think there's a future for a Tracer and Ledger where they maybe get bought out by a Samsung and different uh, mobile providers. But it's already in your phone. It's already there. WebAuth.com, you can try it out. And the future is really face ID and touch ID using the secure element on the devices that we already own. So devices that we already own are going to get better. That's that's what I think is going to happen. Awesome. <clears throat> Richard, I'm going to change the question just a hair for you. And and um, when we're talking about gaming, we're talking about metaverses. And I, I'm thinking about, too, you know, back in my gaming days, uh, if you went to the, like, the, the last three games that I played, I probably had hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands, of various assets across the board. And so in this in this NFT world that we're moving to, where, where you, ha- you can own these and move them around, how no one's yet come up with, with a file folder structure for a wallet. Um, you know, what, what's, how are people going to organize themselves and how are people going to manage if this is truly, you know, the world that Marshall just said, you know, I, I, my Dropbox has, you know, I think like 12 terabytes of data in it. Like what, how are you going to manage the, these, these assets? Um, well, let me let me just make a comment, perhaps to Jessica's point earlier, because I do. If you think B two B is hard, try B two C. Like that is um, in in terms of usability, and uh, you know, if um, I, w- I won't say how old she is, but if you know, if my mum can't use it, um, it's too hard for main tr- mainstream adoption. So I agree a hundred percent in terms of the the tech enablers, but it's just much much too hard right now. Um, and it has to be simple. It has to be that less than three clicks. So that that must be where we get to. Um, on and the same look, the same applies in, uh, to answer your question, Jay. Making it easy. I mean, one answer is uh, come and join Polemos, where we have our platform stood up. That's we're working very hard on unifying essentially all of these asset formats. Uh, we're talking multiple chains, multiple metadata formats. Uh, that need to be integrated to give you a consistent view of, of what you own and to allow you to trade and stake and borrow and, and sort of just engage naturally with the game. Um, but the you know, the same uh, the same argument applies. It's got to be usable at a level that the, con- the current consumer, the current player expects. Nobody is going to go out of their way to deal with something that is more inconvenient than they used to, unless you're giving them a really compelling proposition. I think nobody is going to believe that, quote, using crypto is a compelling enough reason uh, to do something that's less convenient. So uh, that 
focus on usability and the usability standards that we already have, that needs to be where we're moving into for, for mainstream adoption because nobody, people, like I said earlier, people don't care about the tech. They just want to get their stuff done. They want to have fun. They want to complete the transaction. They want to tip the ballet, what, you know, whatever it might be. We've got to get out of the way. You know, and, and I really appreciate that. So as, as we kind of uh, are running out of time here, I want to take a quick wrap up and, and consensus ar- around the room. Uh, what I took out of this conversation is, is really important. And, and that is, yes, we are early. But there wasn't a single problem that we threw at this panel, which again, I, I say are some of the smartest people around Web3. And, and there wasn't a single problem or issue or, or you know, thought that isn't already on the roadmap, that isn't already under works and being tackled. And I think that's the important part is, is back in Web1. Nobody really understood where we were going. They couldn't Im- imagine in a digital future was was something that really if only a few people really far out thought. Um, the thought of selling books on the internet or accepting a credit card was just like, oh my God, why would anyone ever do that? That's insane. And, and here we are now accepting that we want to have a digital future. We want to have a global economy. But we, we understand it's too early just to say everyone get on. Like, I, I, I don't really promote, like, hey, put all your money into blockchain because it's still a little early, but you should absolutely start learning. Jessica, what's, what's a few of your good takeaways? Gosh, I think that this uh, takeaway around the need for regulation, I know that is a continuing conversation, but there's, there is a little bit of until we have some, some comfort there, we're going to, to struggle with some adoption. So I, I think that's important. Uh, and then just a second takeaway that, um, that everyone here is really thinking about usability and, and understands that that's the next wave and that we're not going to be talking about protocols and APIs. And, you know, we did here, even in this group, tiered toward a layman's audience, but that's not the future. And I think we all understand that. And it's the building blocks to get to the future. So that's my takeaway. That's amazing. Uh, y Whales and everyone else who's watching, I really want to thank you for this special episode of YWeb3. Um, Jessica and Marshall, Richard and Alex, thank you guys so much for your time today. I really, really appreciate it. Uh, we've got some amazing projects that are out there with Polymos, uh, Omnia, and, and Proton. And again, if, if you have not played around with any of these protocols, uh, I wish you the best of luck with Omnia. But the other ones are very easy <laughs> to work with. Uh, I, I absolutely love what Alex is doing. I think that Richard you know, what the mainstream that you're going to bring to, to kind of guild gaming and everything else is, is fascinating. And I can't wait to see where that evolves uh, later this year. Uh, Marshall, I, listen, I'm a fanboy, so I, I have a, I have a challenge, you know, trying to hide that. Um, I, I think it gasless is the way to go. The ease of adoption is clearly there. I thank you for your time and, and, and what you're doing, uh, everyone. And thank you so much, Jessica, as always, it's been a pleasure. So thank you. Why Whales was founded in 2021 by Jay Steinbach, a passionate entrepreneur and business owner with the purpose of bringing YPO and YNG members together in the cryptoverse. Why Whales is a collaborative and confidential community centered around cryptocurrencies and blockchain technology, an exclusive crypto hub of more than 600 members. To be notified when we release new content, please subscribe to our show in your preferred listening app. For more information, visit www.ywhales.com.
YWales is not affiliated with YPO, but at this time only allow for YPO, YPO Gold, and YNG members due to privacy and confidentiality. Support and production for today's episode was done by TruthWork Media. Nothing in the podcast constitutes professional and or financial advice, nor does any information on the podcast constitute a comprehensive or complete statement of the matters discussed or the law relating thereto.